another MLEX podcast. My name's James Panicki. I'm MLEX's Brussels Managing Editor, and it's another Brexit week here in the EU's institutional hometown, with plenty of commotion surrounding the third round of negotiations to hammer out the terms and conditions of the UK's divorce from the bloc. And let's be frank, there's been some grumpiness going around, some frayed tempers. Yesterday we reported European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker saying that Britain's proposal at this stage was unsatisfactory. And in Brussels, when something's described as unsatisfactory, it means that resentment is simmering. Or is it? Could this just be the kind of posturing you'd expect at moments like these? The two people best placed to answer this question are Simon Taylor, MLEX's senior political correspondent, and Matthew Holhouse, our UK correspondent who covers Brexit and who we're lucky to have in our Brussels offices this week. Simon, Matthew, hello. Hello. Hi. Now, let's recap before getting stuck into the nerdy MLEXy angles. Posturing or genuine dissatisfaction? Matthew, what do you make of it? Um, so there's a lot of tactics going on. The the EU's biggest asset is the clock. The UK's only got two years to seal a deal. Uh, if there's no deal done in that time, then it's the UK that suffers much more. So the EU can set the rule book and, and it can set a clock running and it and they know that they can do that to push the UK into accepting certain conditions. And what we're seeing is the UK trying to push against that, but you know, the longer this goes on, the less time there is to to talk about the the future relationship. So there's there's a huge amount of tactics here, and a lot of the comments you're getting out of the European institutions are playing into that, trying to create this drumbeat of pressure. Yes, uh, Simon, I see you nodding. You're of the same same opinion on this one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are heading up, uh, heading towards the, the one of the first deadlines in the Brexit negotiations um, in October. The leaders of all the well, the 27 member states, but also the UK, will come together. The UK really wants uh, a decision then to move the Brexit talks onto the next stage of negotiations, the future relationship that Matthew was talking about. Um, and, and, and now we're in the run-up to that period and, and the mood from the EU side is um, there hasn't been sufficient progress. The UK is not talking seriously enough or not being clear enough. Its papers are not good enough. Exactly. Uh, and so how can you expect us to give you a positive, give you a green light in, in October? So, but, but, but is there an element of truth to that? I mean, you have both read the, the papers that have come out of the UK. Are they too flimsy, lacking in detail? Well, first of all, the UK doesn't have a paper on, on its financial settlement, either the money it owes by the time it leaves Brexit. So they're, they're right about that but but the EU side saying this week as well we do we don't even understand your position properly and the UK is quite deliberately first of all not coming up with a figure but not not even saying uh, this is this is a way we, we're not even going to say how uh, what we think is an acceptable way well, to but, calculate our budget yes yeah, but, but these are brilliant tactics aren't there, they? there is and yeah. there's a the UK perspective on this would be that there's a lot of there's a lot of propaganda in this in that the EU likes to present itself as being completely orderly, rational, humanitarian, everything's foreseen, everything's running to a beautiful timetable, whereas the UK is chaotic, stupid, doesn't understand the rules. Mm. If you talk to the UK negotiators, they say, we do know these rules because we wrote them in the first place. (laughs) And they say, look at our legal position, and they will point you to a stack of documents about a foot high Mm. uh, that hundreds of barristers have worked on to to produce an incredibly refined view of how things should go. And they say, look, the EU side is kind of making it up as they go along. They're kind of winging it. They're using all sorts of uh, Mm. quite flimsy legal arguments to basically try and extract 60 billion quid out of us. Um, so, so, the, so this applies to both sides. So, I, I, I always, when when I see you know this sort of commentary that 
the the UK at an official level is completely clueless. Uh, I, I don't accept that. The question of whether at a tactical level the UK politicians are making smart choices and actually understand the politics of this that's a, that's a separate question but to an outside observer it always seems as though they've almost reached an impasse where you have people like Juncker and 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 Barnier both saying look w- there is no way we can uh, we can talk about the future until we've settled the past and the UK negotiators seem to not want to accept that is that just the outside perception or is there a, a, a an element of truth to the, to the fact that they're not seeing eye to eye on this very crucial element. Well, I think, as Matthew says, it's tactical. I, I think we are in an impasse, but it's it's almost a deliberate one, uh, because uh, and the only thing that's going to break it is um, a, a sort of high level political, uh, uh, you know, who blinks first, really. And, and we're wondering now whether UK Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, around the October summit or just before the or at the October summit itself, will actually say, "All right, guys, fair enough." We think this is a fair figure, and maybe we spread it over five years or something mm. like that. Um, so, you, you know, just because, um, uh, as Matthew said, the clock is ticking. The the UK really needs a quite detailed deal on what its future relations look like, but also the transitional arrangements from where we are now to where we'll be um, when that deal comes into force. And to negotiate that by... Uh, you know, the end of next year, basically a year from now, is extremely tough. Yeah. So the pressure's on the UK, I think, to blink first on this. And, 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 yeah. and the, the UK does have a, something of a point around this, the, the EU structure that says you deal with a basket of exit issues and then you talk about the future. Say uh, something like n- nuclear waste. Nuclear waste is uh, produced by a German uh, power plant, is processed for refinement in the UK. They've got to work out who owns that, who's responsible for it. And the UK sort of says, well, well, we could do that and work out who in the international has ownership of this, mm. or we could just work out that we'll keep on processing each other's waste like we always have done. Mm. They say similar things like, we could work out you know, what is the status of a piece of car mm. engine that is caught halfway across the channel on exit day if the authorization to no longer do it, to sell it yeah. expires. Or we could just come up with an agreement to, on on trade. So, mm. so 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 the UK kind of feels that they're being locked into wasting quite a lot of time trying to come up with a whole load of legal agreements which would quarterise its membership. They've got to do that, and yes. then they've got to talk about future trade relationship. Why not just do the same thing at once? Well, it's what the UK is saying. Yes, I know that, and and it's from the way you've presented it to me now. That sounds like quite a strong argument. I wonder if if the EU and this moves us on to the issue of flexibility, I suppose, which is what everyone's talking about at the moment. And I mean, David Davis himself uh, raised this particular issue. Is the EU lacking in flexibility? It's going into this with a whole set of demands, where it said, "Look, this is the timetable that you have to accept." Uh, maybe it's time for the EU to blink rather than the uh, the UK to blink. I think there is a problem on the EU side about flexibility because, um, uh, you know, Barnier and his team, we talk about them having a negotiating mandate. Well, and I'm not sure that's true. They have a position that's agreed by the, the 27 countries, uh, by the leaders, uh, and they have to represent that. You know, mm. they don't have, I think, the traditional wiggle room that you have mm. in international trade negotiations. And, and Barnier spoke to you today, in fact. I mean, you're in the media scrum uh, today being being Wednesday. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. What did he have to say about that issue? Of, well, of he said, he said, uh, you know, I, I can't start to be flexible until I know the, the, the two points to be flexible between, i.e., mm. 
what the EU position is, but I need to be clear about the UK position. And, and he's repeating what he said before that the U, because until while the UK is not saying how much, how to work out what its bill should be, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can't then go back to the other, to the member states and say, well, look, they're prepared to pay this, or this is their way of doing it. What do you think? And maybe should we, you know, can we sort of cut them a bit of slack on this? Mm-hmm. Um, Well, I mean, let me be devil's advocate on the issue of flexibility. And let's talk about the Northern Ireland issue and the borders of Northern Ireland. Now, there would be an argument to be made, I'm sure the UK is making it behind the scenes, that, look, until we've moved further down the track in terms of the agreement that we need to, the overarching agreement, we can't really talk about something as specific as how to manage a land border in Northern Ireland. And I mean, and, and that would be a strong, strong argument to make, wouldn't it, Matthew? Yes, I mean, the, the issue of Northern Ireland is tied up with the peace process and citizens, but you're also talking about uh, does the UK continue to participate in the EU's common energy market? Because energy in Northern Ireland is part of a, 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 pan, a pan-border settlement wow. that involves the Republic of Ireland and stuff being supplied in from the UK. So, so how can we work out Northern Ireland until we know about that? How can we work out Northern Irish border until we know you know, what are the farming standards going to be in the United Kingdom and therefore know, actually, are you going to have a problem on that border with, uh, you know, GM crops? Mm. Um, and, and actually, I think the EU kind of recognises that because the EU isn't, isn't saying we're going to have a, a, a Northern Irish solution come October. They know that, that that's actually going to be multiple years to yeah. sort out. Simon, we published a great analysis piece of yours uh, today, which in a way taps into this notion of flexibility or the lack of uh, flexibility. And the question that you uh, put to our readers was this, to what extent should the EU punish the UK for leaving the bloc? And to what extent should it instead build a close relationship with the UK to protect or even project and promote its own regulatory framework. Now, so you've been at this particular crossroads. What did, what did you make of it? Well, well, I think, first of all, it, 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 there is a bit of a dilemma because um, the UK could be incredibly valued for the EU going forward because, um, as we've seen, a lot of the position papers, they want the status quo. They, we want to keep data protection rules. We want uh, our cooperation on, on settling family law and contractual disputes amongst member states. We want to carry on the way we've been doing that. Goods that have been authorised on the market should you know, be able to move freely after Brexit as before. So we want the status quo. Um, now, um, the UK, when it's outside, um, will, if it sticks to the EU rules and regulations, will be requesting the same rules and regulations for, pro- you know, when it does trade deals with India and China. So, so if you like the reach of the EU and its kind of regulatory approach, which is not universal, data mm-hmm. protection, for example, the EU, the EU has very different rules from the US, where the, the, the EU tends to be much more protective of, 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 of personal privacy and data privacy. So, but 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 the the EU is sort of on the horns of a dilemma here it's if we hug the UK close it's a valuable ally but at the same time we have to punish them because they've they've had the guts or the temerity to leave the EU so we can't we can't we can't give them a deal on the current terms at the moment but but but, 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 I mean the other point to that is that the EU has kind of painted itself into a corner because it has also said look we are not going to uh, pull away from our demands that there be free movement of people in the UK so you can't have a de facto 
uh, European Union membership if you're not prepared to agree to that. The UK is not going to agree to that. And so, the, I mean, again, we've, they've, they've already reached, I mean, the negotiations in, have in a way just, just begun. We've still got, you know, a year and a half ahead of us. Yet they've both painted themselves into a corner on that front. They have. And, and it's a very interesting dynamic in the UK because the much of the Brexit case was built on the idea that the EU overregulates and that that's bad for the British economy. And there are lots of uh, papers, arguably quite flaky, but it was a big part of the intellectual case that said, when we leave the EU, you could get rid of things like GDPR. You could start legalising uh, genetically modified crops. You could use all sorts of pesticides, which aren't able in, you can't use in the EU, and the British economy would go whoosh. You would be unchained. Now, if there was a debate about doing that in the British government, it hasn't lasted very long because all the position papers we got... Uh, in in the past couple of weeks, mm. have basically said, lock us in. Yeah. We're you know we are we are sat here. Give us give us access, and we will not budge. We will we will maintain regulatory equivalence. And this makes quite a lot of people in the UK quite nervous because they think that actually you will have left the EU and thrown away any potential mm. deregulatory gains. But I you know I th I think that's a massive prize for the. European Union, because you you maintain the sort of hegemony, the the, the EU status as a superpower that you can even hmm. influence regulation in in a country that has has just left. That's a huge yeah. a huge strategic long term win. But the price for that will be hmm. allowing the UK some reasonable degree of yeah. market access. And and uh, Simon, you um, you singled out for attention two particular regulatory areas. One is data protection. The other one was agriculture, which I was a bit surprised by. I mean, data protection makes sense in the sense that uh, the standards that uh, European users uh, already have already signed up to are obviously identical to those of the UK. Why not just keep this thing in, in place so that data protections can go, uh, can continue to exist? But agriculture, What's, what's uh, I mean, what are we talking about when we're talking about agricultural standards? We're talking about food safety, presumably? Well, we're, I mean, first and foremost, we're talking about, yeah, about animal hygiene rules, um, uh, you know, what kind of medicines you can give pigs and, 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 and dairy cattle and so on and so forth, you know, to ensure that those, you know, or you don't, you know, antibiotics don't, you don't build antibiotic resistance in consumers who consume a lot of uh, pork and, and, and dairy products, things like that. Uh, but also food safety rules, you know, about, um, you know, um, freshness and, and, and refrigeration and, 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 and stuff like that. So that's that's one element. And that's kind of that's tucked away in the paper on Ireland. It says if we do this, uh, for example, one way of dealing with the problems in Northern Ireland or the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland is just regulatory equivalence. We'll follow the EU rules. Uh, we might you know, we might have a few slight differences how we get there, you know, but, but basically we got, we'll agree to have the same rules. Um, so that's one aspect. And of course, it sorts out the Northern Ireland problem, but that would apply to the whole of the UK. And of course, it's tucked away in the paper on Ireland, hoping no one will really notice it, but the Commission has noticed it. But, but also, um, um, levels of support to farmers. This is a slightly different issue. The UK, when it leaves the EU, ceases to be a member of the World Trade Organization. So it has to have its own kind of um, uh, what they call schedules, at the, at the, which is like the list of concessions and tariff rates and, and so on and so forth. And we know that the UK is negotiating with the EU um, to basically be able to maintain uh, or to have the right at least to pay the same level of support to farmers that they get while they're in the EU. So as Matthew was saying, there was supposed to be this, this great sort of 
harvest of deregulation and, and, and not paying farmers mm. too much and millionaire like not paying the queen billion mm. you know millions a year but but basically that's that's not going to but, but but on a political level and I understand all of this and it makes all makes perfect sense in a way and the EU should uh, should should be taking note of all of this because there's the the EU stands to gain on that front but why bother with Brexit in the first place if that I mean this comes back to the political decision that we were talking about before right. why why would you go through all of the trauma of Brexit, lose any say in the way in which the European Union is run, if you're going to sign up to this kind of regulatory uh, level of integration? Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. it, 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 cut, it cuts a, a really existential point about what, what, what is the point of, uh, of Brexit in the mm. first place, if you're going to leave the, the, the single market and, and replicate all yes. its provisions. Now, yeah. I mean, and lots of leavers are saying that, yes. but actually why, why this wasn't quite what we intended... Mm. But clearly, the British government's taking a view that actually, uh, maybe those those regulatory dividends aren't there, or that if they are there, they are going to be much smaller than the the pain that you will inflict by, let's say, locking yourself out of a data transfer agreement. You know, yeah. because you but you lose all, all all these high high tech companies in the UK for some mm. marginal. Yeah. savings in, in reducing compliance costs for but, other businesses. But, but Matthew, where does this leave the vision of the Singapore of Europe in which, you know, it's a it's a hub of activity, of, of enterprising souls, of people who want to create a, sort of a great, vibrant new market? This doesn't sound like Singapore. This sounds like something else. So, so the Singapore... Sounds like EU light. The, 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 the Singapore dream was, was a dream of some levers and it was a backup plan of... Theresa May and her stick that if she didn't get what she wanted here that she would become the EU's worst nightmare which has become a low tax mm. low regulation economy on the shores of Europe which would mm. undermine uh, the, the European economy and, and would be suck in and, lots of and suck in lots of foreign yeah. investment and be painful at home but yeah. it's what we would do to fight back and that that died and I'll tell you exactly when it died yes. it died at 10pm on the night of June the 8th uh, the election night Exit poll comes in and yeah. Jeremy Corbyn, a socialist leader, has got 40% in, in, in the opinion polls, in, in, in the election, in the exit polls. And what it shows is that there are lots and lots of middle class seats, Tory voters who would vote for Jeremy Corbyn. And you, you cannot pursue this strategy with mm. Jeremy Corbyn at the gates because mm. the British people will not tolerate it. Because to pursue the Singapore strategy, yes. you have to erode your tax base. You've got to privatise hospitals. Mm. You're going to do huge damage to, to Britain's fiscal balance. You can't afford but schools and the rest of it. It just and The Tory party can't afford that because yes. they know that that road does not lead to Singapore. It leads to Jeremy Corbyn and his socialist government. <laughs> and so that, that strategy is dead. And, and I think that people yes. in this town know it. Oh, and I mean, well, that's a key point because you could always use the Singapore model as a threat with which to, to be, but not anymore. No. That's, that's, that's and, and this is the, the heart yeah. of the no deal strategy was, was, a, was a Downing Street calculation that the British people wanted Brexit so much that they would endure high price for it, including the price of no deal. Yeah. And what the general election showed is that actually the British public will not tolerate that level of pain to get Brexit. Mm. And if Theresa May's government does not get a deal here, then they will find a government that can get a deal in Europe, even if it's Jeremy Corbyn. But and that has that has completely changed the dynamics of the talk. But yeah. I think coming back to your earlier question about, you know, this doesn't look, what was the, what's the whole point of Brexit? I mean, I, I think it, what it illustrates as well is that 
you know, people, people, it wasn't explained clearly to people what the implications of Brexit was be. I mean, there was, there was a, a black and white choice. Do you want to leave or do you want to remain? But no one said, um, do you want to stay in the single market? Do you want to stay in the customs union? Um, you know, what do you think about Euratom? You know, what should we do? All these kind of detailed questions that governments are there to decide uh, on behalf of in the, in the, in the national interest. We're, we're, it's just, you can't capture that complexity um, in a referendum. And, and the thing that, you know, didn't emerge in the campaigning, in, in, in you know, in, in the run-up to the referendum, was, um, you know, one very real scenario is you vote to leave, but you 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 end up having to, uh, as I say, be a rule taker to basically follow what the EU does as Norway has to, with no say over it. And that you know that is um, kind of where we're heading at the moment. And I think we're in a process of drip feeding that uh, to the to the British general public. Um, um, uh, because you know what they say, you know, the best way to sort of boil a frog is to turn up the temperature of the water gradually. gradually yeah. um, you know, if you, if you plump him in um, boiling water, he'll, he'll jump out straight away. Um, and is, is that what that's what's happening to the British public at the moment? They're, they're the frog in the they're the frog in the uh, in the pan. It's a, I mean, it's really it's a really good question that there has not been a high level of interrogation at home about what should be in the UK-EU agreement. There's a lot of talk, you know, on the Tory backbenches about tariffs. We want tariff-free trade. Mm. Obviously, everybody knows that it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that. But actually, has the debate of, of exactly these issues mm. that we're talking about, you know, should you be aligned with, um, with you know, provisions on chemicals yeah. or yeah. should we be a sovereign yeah. chemical regulator? Should we be aligned mm. with the EU decision-making on medicines yeah. so we can get the, the same medicines as everybody in Europe really fast? Or should we be a sovereign medicine regulator and do some stuff yeah. a little bit differently but with higher risks? That debate has not taken place and, and that that's the, the very essence of Brexit, these decisions. And, uh, but I'll tell you one thing that uh, UK punters uh, who are um, out there might not know too much about Brexit but know a lot about the EU Court of Justice. The reason for this is that the EU Court of Justice has always, or ECJ as it used to be called, has always been held up as one of the great evils. And that is one of the red lines of mm -hmm. Theresa May. She said, no, under no circumstances are we going to allow ourselves to, to um, come under the, mm -hmm. uh, the purview of the European EU Court of Justice. But they need something, don't they? Because any trade deal, uh, any trade deal with the EU is going to be wafer thin unless there is some kind of a body uh, to uh, that, that people can turn to when they're dissatisfied with a particular outcome or a particular decision or a particular sort of a, a trade decision. So what do they go to? They need something that's not the e e EU Court of Justice, but what is it going to be? Right, so this this is a piece we wrote earlier in the week on the, and it was about a paper that the British government produced, and they said, we want an, a court, uh, we want an arbitration mechanism, a dispute resolution mechanism. We knew that. The new thing is that the UK government wants a, a, a mechanism which is equipped to produce rulings or adjudications or advisory recommendations on questions of EU law. So the, the EU, uh, there's a really fundamental principle of EU law which says that you can apply EU law outside the bloc's borders. A non-EU state can use EU law. But if you do that, you cannot diverge in your interpretations of how that law works 
from rulings of the ECJ. And we described the paper that the UK government produced as a fork in the road. This is is the most vastly significant moment, I think, of the entire Brexit talk so far, because the UK government has, has decided we don't want a conventional trade court. We want a court which can adjudicate on questions of EU law. Mm-hmm. That means that in theory, at least in principle, the UK can build its new relationship with the EU out of blobs of single market regulation. And that means yeah. that all the nice things that the UK currently enjoys, like cooperation on medicines, or the security cooperation, yeah. the, the ability of an EU citizen to get their pension paid in the UK, mm-hmm. that can all be kept because you, you can just basically keep huge amounts of EU legislation and yes. con- continue but to apply it in the UK under a court. And if you didn't do that, then you'd be looking at a way thinner deal. So yes. th- this was this was a big thing for the Tory party to swallow, but they've swallowed it and it yes. opens up, in theory at least, a world of possibility. But a, a sceptic would say that, look, this is just a European Court of Justice under a different name. I mean, there, there would be elements of it. Or would it be a totally different thing? Well, it wouldn't be totally different, no. It'd be uh, more along the lines of, of, uh, of the EFTA countries, for example. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a very important number of differences. I mean, one, uh, this court would be entirely staffed by British judges. We, we, think. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that. We yet. don't know that. But 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 at least there would be, there, there would be majority. Judges on it. There would be British judges on it. Majority. So it wouldn't be a whole bunch of Europeans that the that would make the. Uh, it the, would the certainly. UK feel it briefed. would certainly be a majority. You yeah. might have. I mean, if you you might have to have, say, for example, one EU judge mm. in the way that uh, the EFTA court has members of all the EFTA countries, judges from each of the EFTA countries. This court would have the UK judges and. If it's with the EU, maybe one, uh, and it would be based in London. And so, I think a crucial phrase here is that the UK would no longer be under the direct jurisdiction uh, mm. of uh, mm. the European Court of Justice. Uh, what you so you might end up in a situation where actually this new UK EU court, or whatever you want mm. to call it, or EUF or UK FTA court, whatever you want to call it, um, would actually follow extremely closely, maybe 99% of the cases uh, identical to European Court of Justice rulings, mm. um, but it would be British judges that decided voluntarily, without coercion, without any legal mm. obligation, to follow those rulings. Uh, now there are cases. The EFTA court has diverged in uh, a number of cases. Mm. Um, our listeners might know about the the, the ICE save. You know the, the Icelandic banks uh, mm. that went bust. There were a lot. Of, there was a lot of investment there. Were a lot of um, UK uh, citizens and indeed banks and public authorities had money there. And the EFTA court um, went against. Um, anyway, diverged mm. from 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 uh, the European Court's case law on that. And con- constitutionally, it's a very different relationship. Yeah. And, uh, there's a principle in, of direct effect in EU law, yeah. which, yeah. which we talked about in the piece of how EU law, uh, a, a decision of the ECJ bites on the individual, wherever they are in Europe. Uh, and, and, and the decisions of the ECJ and, and EU law uh, has, has a power to be uh, invoked before a domestic court. Now, the UK is going to do away with that. It's going to come up with a different sort of relationship that means that any any decision under the agreement has to be implemented through domestic legislation. Yeah. So, so uh, which, which, which is, is sort of really high legal theory doesn't really mean very much mm. in you know, to the man in the street, but to the Conservative MPs that have driven this Brexit course, that's the difference between day and night, because for them that's the difference between being a free sovereign state and being a, yeah, no. uh, being, being a, a mere 
mm. uh, a mere region of a European super state. For them, that, that's vastly important, mm. and, they're, and they're very happy because they yeah. they feel that that can be that can be achieved. Yeah, and, and, but at the same time, the optics of having a, a sort of British, uh, you know, a, a, a London-based or, or UK-based court with British judges, uh, people aren't really people won't scrutinise uh, to what extent that court follows mm. the judgments of the European Court of Justice. It's the the optics will yeah. be extremely. Uh, uh, valuable to a, mm. to, a, to a Conservative government or indeed any government making that if it has, to, has to implement that. Matthew and Simon, thank you very, very much for uh, speaking to me. Thank you. thank you. Simon Taylor and Matthew Holhouse both cover Brexit for MLEX. Simon from Brussels, Matthew from London. Subscribers to our services can read their reports and analysis at our website. I'm James Paniki on behalf of all the MLEX team here in Brussels. Thank you very much for your company. See you soon. Bye for now.